Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Then I heard a twig snap on the ground and I looked straight down. I saw a man standing at the base of the tree looking up at me. It took me about five minutes to muster the slightest ounce of courage to turn my head just enough to see the window in my periphery, only to hear a loud crunch and another couple of taps, just a bit lighter. I walked into the living room to drink my tea while looking at the slowly rising sun when I suddenly froze. In front of the porch window stood a hooded man. From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. This episode is sponsored by Wondery's Generation Y podcast, where hosts Justin and Aaron dig deep for answers on crime and unsolved murder cases, breaking down theories, looking at forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. Listen to Wondery's The Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you three true horrifying tales and a listener voicemail that will chill you to the bone. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. We open the show hearing from Reddit user Liquid Pen Chamber 1019, featuring voice work by Tom Aglio, and we encounter the man in the woods. When I was about nine years old, this would have been the early 90s, my family and I lived in a house with a fairly big wooded area behind our backyard. I say fairly big because it wasn't big enough that you could really get lost in it for very long, but it was big enough that you could walk into it for a good 20 minutes before making it to the center. It got pretty thick in some areas and you couldn't see any of the houses from the neighborhoods once inside. My friends and I, it was a magical world. We played in those woods all summer long. My mom would let us go in there as long as we were back by sundown. Like I said, this was the early 90s and times were a little different then. My best friend would come over and we would run out there and play for hours. We played hide and seek, army, Star Wars, and anything we could think of. But our favorite thing to do was climb trees. We had a favorite tree to climb. It was a huge pine out towards the middle of the woods. The branches at the bottom were low enough that we could grab on and pull ourselves up. And the branches leading up were all very strong, and we could climb really high and see a view from above most of the other trees. Sometimes when I got bored at home, I'd go out there by myself. I'd climb real high in that tree and just think about stuff. I loved being way up there. It was so peaceful and calm. One Sunday, I decided to go out on a solo mission in the evening. I knew I didn't have too long before dark, so I hurried into the woods to get a good climb in. 
I was up in my spot in no time. I remember it was late summer, and the weather was still warm late into the evening. I wanted to be able to see a little bit of sunset, and then I'd climb down and hurry home. I just sat up there and daydreamed as I waited for the sun to begin to set. Then I heard a twig snap on the ground and I looked straight down. I saw a man standing at the base of the tree, looking up at me. I remember he was wearing a filthy brown jacket and he had a patchy beard. His hair was sticking up at random places, looking like he had been relentlessly running his fingers through it. He was just staring at me with a bizarre expression that seemed to be one of wonder and delight. It was an extremely unnerving look, almost a look of someone that just realized they stumbled across the gold at the end of a rainbow. That's the only way I can describe it. It made my blood run cold. I went completely numb, like I had been injected into my veins. I didn't know how long he had been watching me before I noticed him. Thinking about that still makes me shiver. We just stared at each other for a moment. He didn't say anything and neither did I. It sounds strange, but I didn't want to scream or tell him to go away because I had this feeling that told me not to provoke him in any way. After a few minutes, he spoke. Are you coming down anytime soon? I shook my head back and forth. I didn't know what to say to him. It was clear I was very uncomfortable at this point, and that should be enough to make a decent person go away, but he only grinned at me. Then he reached his hand up and grabbed the bottom branch of the tree, as if to test to see if it could hold him. I do believe he may have been planning to climb up to me, but the lowest branch was flimsy, and it was not strong enough to hold a grown adult. I thank God for that. He soon realized this and gave up, but I had seen enough. I finally broke my silence and started to yell for someone to help me. I kept screaming and screaming. The man backed away a step or two from the tree and began to mumble and curse under his breath. He flailed his arms in the air in a rage and began making a motion like he was pushing an invisible person in front of him. Eventually, he turned and walked away, sort of stumbling with each step. I don't think anybody heard my cries because nobody came to help me. I stayed up in that tree for what felt like hours because I wasn't sure if he was really gone. Finally, I climbed down because the sun was beginning to set, and I couldn't bear to be out there at night. I hit the ground and bolted back to my house, positive that he would pop out from a shadow and grab me. He never did. I made it home and told my parents. My dad went out to look in the woods, but he never saw anybody. We stayed in that house for about another two years before we moved across town to a bigger house. I never played in those woods again for the rest of our time there. I still think about that man sometimes. What would he have done if I would have come down? I have no idea. But that question does keep me up some nights. Next up, we check in with Reddit user MC Clap Your Hands, featuring voice work by Tanya E.B. And we accidentally leave the blinds open. So this happened last summer. It was around 11 p.m. and I was sitting at my dining table, typing away on my final paper of the semester. Behind me sits my kitchen and a big window that overlooks my backyard. This backyard was surrounded completely by a six-foot vinyl privacy fence. And inside that fence was a little garden I'd been working hard on. Lots of cute flowers and a little pond. I was proud of it and would leave the blinds open so I could take in all my hard work during the day. I was caught up in my paper that was due by midnight and since it was late, the dogs were snoozing away nearby. My concentration was broken by a very sudden, very loud, and very deliberate tap-tap, tap-tap-tap-tap behind me. I froze completely, and it dawned on me I'd never closed my blinds. All my interior lights were on, and we know how that works. Whoever was tapping could see me perfectly. 
Weirdly and inconveniently enough, my dogs who normally bark at the slightest noise were still sound asleep. It took me about five minutes to muster the slightest ounce of courage to turn my head just enough to see the window in my periphery, only to hear a loud crunch and another couple of taps, just a bit lighter. Nope, fuck that. No need to look. The last thing I needed to see was a face pressed up against that window. To my left was a door to the carport which led to the backyard. The handle was within arm's reach and I wouldn't have to look at the window to open it. I called to my dogs and they jumped up as soon as I turned the knob. I guess the watcher realized what I did. About 30 seconds passed and I heard a couple more crunches, then a very loud thud. If you've ever heard a vinyl fence being smacked against, it's a bit distinctive and I knew they'd jumped it. My dogs finally went nuts and I ran to the window near the thud. Lights off and blinds closed there, thankfully. I caught a quick glimpse of a leg disappearing behind the corner of my neighbor's house. I stayed up until dawn with my metal baseball bat and one of those giant sharp grill forks. With the fence and dog, I always felt safe. How they got back there so quietly, I'll never know. I've lived here my whole life and never had anything happen, so this has shaken me. Whoever that was wanted me to know they were there and definitely wanted my attention. I've since installed multiple cameras and motion lights all around the perimeter of my house. It's been quiet since. I feel better, but that illusion of safety has all but disappeared. Are you terrified yet? You will be. Up next is a listener submission from Ari via the hotline, free and available to all listeners at disturbedpodcast.com slash hotline. And she's bringing us her experience of sleep paralysis. So Ari, take it away. Hi, my name is Ari, and I am from San Diego, California. And I've had quite a number of sleep paralysis experiences but one in particular stands out the most. I was in my early teens, I want to say about 14. I remember turning off my bedroom TV and just falling into the comfort of my blankets and the softness of my pillow, and I started to smell what I would describe as smoky, rotten eggs. And I open my eyes. I look over towards the door and I see a silhouette of a person that is darker than the darkness of my bedroom, which is only illuminated by the red light of my DVD player. So needless to say, quite dull. But this darkness was black. The blackest of blacks. I felt my heart beating out of my chest. I could feel every hair on my body standing up and feeling ice cold. And I stared at it for what felt like forever until it started to come near me. I couldn't move a single muscle. The only thing I could do was blink. But this thing I can't say walked because it didn't appear to have legs, but it came closer until it was standing at my bedside, just staring at me. 
It didn't have eyes, but you could feel that it was piercing through you. Like it was staring into me. And I remember trying to struggle out of this paralysis, trying to move and freaking myself out, thinking, how the heck did I get here? What is going on? What is this thing? It feels like pure evil. It starts to move through the bed until it is standing through me at about my stomach area. And I can see this dull kind of brightness where its head should be. And it's just staring and staring. And I'm freaking out. I finally managed to think to myself, you cannot hurt me. You need to leave. And it didn't work. So I started to pray, even though I'm not a religious person. But as I started to think the Lord's Prayer, it started to disappear like kind of dematerializing. Now, the reason I say that this is not like any other sleep paralysis I've ever experienced is because as I started to gain the ability to move and started to sit up, my lights came on, my TV came on, my speakers went on. Anything that could be turned on was turned on. I hadn't moved. So I'm wondering what this thing was, why it made me feel absolute terror like that, and how the hell did it turn on all my lights? I've never experienced it again, but a few years after that, I recalled this incident to my little cousin. We were downstairs. The only two people in the house were us, and we decided to come upstairs to my bedroom, which I had left as a normal bedroom, everything off, door open. But when I came upstairs with her, every single drawer I had was open. My closet doors were aligned perfectly together. It, there's no one home. Who did that? On occasion, we've been in our backyard and we happened to look up towards our window on the second floor. And you can see sometimes somebody walking past the window even though there's nobody in the house. Needless to say, I think my house is haunted. But thanks for listening. Huge fan of the show. Keep doing what you're doing, because I love being scared by your episodes. Thanks, Ari, for your submission. And sleep paralysis is a tricky one for me. I think it's something we don't fully understand yet. And quite possibly, more is going on than what we think or know. Thanks again for your entry, and let's keep these listener submissions rolling in. Could be an experience you went through, maybe you had a sighting or something you can't explain. We want to hear it, and other listeners want to hear it as well. Visit disturbedpodcast.com hotline to tell your story in your own words and get your voice on the show. Disturbed is brought to you by the Generation Y Podcast, 
Now, this is a podcast that I've really been getting into during the pandemic, and for good reason. Hosts Justin and Aaron do such a fantastic job digging deep for answers to cases of true crime and unsolved murders. Now, what I believe that really sets them apart is their attention to detail. A lot of podcasts out there you listen to will just read off a Wikipedia page about a murder case, and that may be fine for some, but real true crime fans want the important details and all the facts. In addition to that, Justin and Aaron give their own perspectives and aren't afraid to say what they really think. They also ask the hard questions and take different perspectives that the listener will really appreciate. Take, for instance, the case of Lori DuPont. This is one I just finished listening to, and it absolutely infuriated me. Lori was a well-respected 37-year-old nurse and single mother. She would go on to meet a physician named Mark Daniel at the hospital where they both worked. The two of them would hit it off and begin a secret relationship because Mark was still technically married. But after not too long, the romance cooled, and Mark would start harassing Lori at the hospital. As it turned out, Mark had a history of dating and being abusive towards nurses. Lori would file a restraining order, but before a judge could issue it, Mark would enter the hospital with a military sword and commit an unthinkable crime. And I cannot even begin to tell you how upsetting this is because of all the avoidable failures along the way. Time and time again, the hospital and people in charge of keeping a safe work environment would fail Lori. The way this episode is presented is really well done and walks you through everything Lori had to go through. It's honestly a must-listen episode. Listen to Wondery's The Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Now back to the deliciously frightful... Disturbed Podcast with your host, Chad. And finally, we have an email submission from Kyle, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford. And we're in for the fight of our lives. One summer, my roommates and twin brothers, Harry and Victor, invited me on a trip to a lake campsite they had found on the internet. I became really good friends with them during uni, so I had no reason to say no. 
And on top of that, the woods surrounding the lake were so scenic, and the cabin we would stay in was so rustic, I just couldn't help but feel charmed. Unfortunately, the problems, if I expected any, started way too fast. We booked the cabin in June, and when we were supposed to pack our bags into Harry's car two months later, I got to know that the twins were not on speaking terms. As Harry had put it, it would be for the best if I just get into the car with Victor. It turned out they both had a crush on a girl back in their hometown, and she chose Harry over Victor. Now, to be honest, it didn't surprise me. Both brothers were very tall, muscular, and handsome. But Harry was a very collected, kind, and gallant guy. And Victor, well, Victor was rowdy, loud, unpredictable, impulsive, and was drinking way too much. He was the most popular guy on campus, and no karaoke night would happen without his baritone. But I always felt like people hated him for the same things they loved him for when they were drunk. Anyway, I still thought it was a bad move on Harry's part to bring his girlfriend on the trip with us, and to pretend like his brother wasn't there. But I decided not to comment on that. When we reached the lake area, I was mesmerized. It was surrounded by thick, deciduous forest with a lot of trails to hike in. The lake was crystal clear, and since there weren't many other campers around, we had this place basically to ourselves. I shared my impressions with Victor, and he rather happily agreed that the scenery is indeed charming, and that let me hope that he wouldn't try to drown his sorrow in alcohol on the first occasion. I nursed him after parties way too many times. We got out of the car, and that was when I got surprised for the second time that day. You see, after Henry started ignoring his brother and invited his girlfriend on the trip, he switched our one three-bedroom cabin to two smaller ones with a single bedroom. He didn't care to hear my opinion on that matter, so here I was, standing in the living room of the cabin I shared with Victor, wondering how bad the back pain would be after a night on the small love seat that was there. And since I knew there was no way I could get through the night on that couch, I moved to the bedroom. I was just putting my last clothes from the bag on the shelf when Victor came in, telling me he would like to go to the small town on the other side of the forest. Naturally, I knew that what he wanted to see the most were the local pubs, but I was also aware that if I said no, he would go there on his own, and that might be much worse. The town was truly charming, or at least the part of it between the parking lot and the first pub was. Victor went straight there as if he knew the way by heart, and I hopelessly wandered after him. When we found a booth to sit in, he gave me the keys to his car, which meant he planned on getting hammered. The pub was nice, elegantly designed, and not too crowded. There were a few people playing cards in the booth across from us, and a couple making out in another booth in the corner. I kind of hoped that we would end the night early on, given that Victor had no one to drink with and the place was uneventful. And then, around 9, the door opened and a group of guys came in. They were all dressed in leather clothes, and some of them had this expression of dull brutality, for lack of better words. Victor turned around, and I saw him and the guy in the front shooting each other an unpleasant look. The group sat in a booth from where that one guy could size Victor up. They ordered a beer and drank it like it was water, and Victor was on his fourth pint of beer already. I was drinking non-alcoholic drinks only, and I heard the guys making comments about it. Not that I cared about some shithead's opinion, but I knew how Victor would react to it, and I didn't want to drive him to the hospital after getting his ass whooped. Around 11, I started persuading Victor to going back. Now, to my surprise, he agreed, but he said he needed a few minutes to collect himself. I told him to wait in the booth and headed to the bathroom. When I came back, Victor wasn't in our booth. 
He was standing chest to chest with that guy, his jaw clenched tightly. If it wasn't for the fear that spiked in my chest, I would laugh at how funny it looked. They both were wearing leather pants and jackets, both were trying to look bigger than the other guy, and both were panting into each other's faces. I noticed that Victor's opponent was wearing a knuckle duster on his right hand. You know, suddenly, that guy threw himself at Victor. I expected he would punch him, but he was fighting like a cat, clawing at his face and hair. It surprised me, but I hoped to get Victor out of this before his attacker decided to make use of that knuckle duster. The clawing at his face was bad enough. I didn't want to take him home without one eye. And my friend sent his rival sprawling with one swift punch, and the next thing I knew, he was the one on top. I ran up to him, pushing Victor off the other guy and pulling him towards the door. He had some scratch marks on his face, and his opponent had a stream of blood flowing from his nose, and I saw him spitting blood from his split lips. It was high time we left this place. I pulled Victor out of the pub and into the cold night. He was drunk, but the adrenaline made him temporarily agile, and so we made it to the parking lot without unwanted tripping and falling. I practically pushed his body into the passenger seat and sat behind the wheel. I started the engine and slowly drove out of the parking lot. After some time, I saw another car behind, literally tailgating us. I couldn't help but wonder how on earth any of them could drive, given how much alcohol they poured into themselves. You care to tell me what happened? I was gone for like, what, three minutes and you managed to make an enemy before I washed my hands? He took a liking to you though. He's hot on our trail now, I informed him, and his eyes went from unfocused in a drunken haze to wide open in a split second. He looked behind us and snorted. It's not like he can catch up to us in that old rusty box. He retorted and looked at the speedometer. Pedal to the metal, baby. I had to stop at the gate to the camp. While the guard was busy searching for the license plate number on his list, I saw the lights of the other car in the lot behind us. The guard let us through and immediately closed the gate behind us, but I didn't feel safe. Yeah, are you going to tell me what happened? I asked again when we got into our cabin. Victor was taking his clothes off and seemed too preoccupied with peeling the leather pants off to reply. He started talking when you were in the bathroom, he said later on when I was getting ready for bed. Well, he pretended he was talking to his pals, but he was speaking so loudly. He said he would like to beat you up and bend you over the sink and so on. You get the picture, he slurred. I was expecting to hear something completely different, and what he said left me speechless. So you decided to take on five guys by yourself? No, I decided to tell him to shut the fuck up. Victor seemed irritated by the fact I didn't praise him for being a knight in shining armor. He was ranting to me about how much ego and little brains that guy had and, and how he had a bad feeling about him the second he saw him. Then he proceeded to make snarky remarks about his opponent, and after that he finally dozed off. I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about what happened, about what that guy was saying about me. I laid there sleepless for a few hours thinking. When the room went from dark to gray, I snapped out of my daze and realized it was only an hour before sunrise. Victor was snoring loudly next to me, smelling of half-digested beer. He pulled almost all of the covers over himself, leaving me exposed to the cold air. I got up with a plan to go to the bathroom and then prepare something hot to drink to help me fall asleep. I walked into the living room to drink my tea while looking at the slowly rising sun when I suddenly froze. In front of the porch window stood a hooded man. My whole body went rigid. The guy had dried blood on his face. I recognized him as Victor's new friend. I didn't know what to do. I felt rooted to the floor. The guy slowly walked to the glass door. He was so close that his breath steamed on the glass. Hey there, he said, 
His voice was a bit muffled because of the glass between us, but still very clear. Can't sleep? I didn't reply. I tell that fucking piece of trash that he won't be so smug when I let all my guys hunt him down like the animal he is, he said. Eyes bored into me. Go away, I managed. He smiled and blew me a kiss. I turned around and walked away. I fell heavily onto the couch. How did he get there? The guard surely didn't let him in. I figured he probably found an entrance on the other side of the lake. It was far away, about two hours of walking to reach the cabins. We saw the entrance on our way there in the afternoon and, and planned to try it out too. Yes, he must have come from there, but to wait the whole night just to scare one of us? But to me, it seemed like this guy had a problem with his head. Great. Just fucking great. I drank the tea and went to bed. I was cold and stressed out and didn't expect to fall asleep at all, but I managed to get some covers from Victor over me, and the warmth quickly made me doze off. I woke up at noon. I immediately shot from the bed and barged into the kitchen, where Victor was busy preparing breakfast. Oh, whoa, what's the rush? He laughed, hung over with faint lines of scratch marks on his face. I told him what happened in the morning. I was worried sick, but he just flipped the pancake on the other side like I was telling him about the weather. In the end, he was laughing again, saying that these guys can kiss his ass. Well, at first they would have to learn what a knuckle duster is for, he admonished. So we didn't talk about it again. We went on a walk around the lake after our late breakfast and then took a hike on the easiest trail. Victor found a nice restaurant in town and we went there for dinner. I was a bit nervous while walking the street, but he seemed at ease. After we came back to our cabin safe and sound, well, a bit sleepy after the food, I thought that Victor was right. There was nothing to worry about. The guy was only courageous while drunk, and he wouldn't know which way to run if he met us on the street in the daylight. So we spent the next week and a half exploring the town, going to museums and going on long hikes. Sometimes we would see the guy from the pub, passing us on the street with his whole leather-clad gang in tow. They had never done anything more than stare us down or mutter something under their breath. That made me feel much safer and confident, even though I still averted my eyes from the porch window whenever I had to go to the bathroom during the night. We had four more days of our trip and nothing new to see, now, at least according to old trusty Google and local guide brochures. When we took a trip to a coffee shop in the oldest street of town, I got into a casual conversation with the salesman and he almost spent half an hour telling me about an old forester's house on the far northern side of the forest. He convinced me it was worth seeing, and how the building was slowly getting absorbed by the forest, touched only by time and nature. I guessed he would gladly carry the conversation until the closing time. Thankfully, Victor approached the counter with coffee bags stashed in his arms. While he was busy packing his purchase, I walked around the shop in search of some interesting flavor. I went into one of the aisles and collided with the person walking out of it. And before I had time to say sorry, I heard a low chuckle and I immediately looked up to see a familiar yet unwelcome face. Oh, easy there, he said with a weird expression on his face. He wouldn't want your mutant of a boyfriend to come running and ripping me a new one, huh? He put his hand on my shoulder and fixed the collar of my jacket. Okay, now I was completely sure he was nuts. I tried to put a distance between us, but he took a step forward every time I took a step back. He's not my... I started, but suddenly he caught my jaw in his hand and pulled my head up. Pushed his hand off, but he just gripped me again. You better keep a close watch on him now. Take a few photos of him, would you? He may not look so pretty after I... After you what? Victor was standing behind me, 
voice icy cold. The guy took his hand away and smiled nastily. You'll see, he replied promptly and turned around. The name is Blaze, hot stuff, he added over his shoulder as he walked out of the aisle and out of the shop. Victor was saying something, but I focused on my own thoughts. That guy, Blaze, probably followed us into the shop and listened to my conversation with the salesman. I couldn't believe he was just trying to scare us this time, though. What do you mean by saying we cannot go to this old house? Asked Victor angrily on our ride back to the cabin. He won't do shit. He couldn't even throw a punch. Stop being such a fucking whip. He practically growled at me, and my forever low self-esteem pushed me into treating his words too seriously. Now, we didn't go to the house on that day, though. Victor went on his evening jog, and I went to visit Harry and his girlfriend in their cabin. I even mentioned visiting the house together, hoping to reconcile the twins and to have company, which would be much welcome in this situation. Harry told me they needed all the alone time they could get. The next day was cloudy and quite cold, so we agreed on driving all the way there instead of taking a three hours long hike. Victor stopped in the parking lot closest to our destination, and we began our short walk. The open space soon gave way to the thick, dark forest. It was much colder here. There wasn't anyone else on the trail, just us. The house wasn't as beautiful as I imagined. It looked like an absolute ruin, and I was surprised there was no sign warning about a potential collapse. I joked that it must have been 20 years ago when the salesman was there for the last time, but Victor said that ruins have this unique charm or something and went inside. The house smelled of rotting wood. Some of the furniture surely was beautiful decades ago but now it could only be used in some horror movies. Victor went upstairs. Every step he made sounded like the roof was about to fall on my head. I approached the dirty window to look outside. I had a bad feeling ever since we walked into the house. It was so grim, rotting, dark, and fucking wet. I was about to turn around and just walk out, but then I heard that sound. Behind me, next to the door, was a wardrobe. Someone just opened it with a creak. Heard Victor walking just right over my head. I swallowed the lump in my throat and turned around. Blaze was standing in the wardrobe, smiling in a way that made my skin crawl. I realized he was waiting for us there, sitting in that fucking piece of rotting furniture just to do that. He didn't say anything, just smiled at me while getting out of that wardrobe. Victor, I started with a trembling voice. Your friend is here. Actually, he was waiting for you. Isn't that nice? Blaze stopped smiling. He ran up to me, and the next thing I knew, my head was outside the broken window, and blood was trickling over my right eye. He pulled me back inside by the hair and proceeded to get the broken glass out of my hair and, and from my face. He was saying something to me in a smooth voice as if trying to soothe me. He was very gentle with me all of a sudden, as if he was a different person than the one who used my head to break the window. Then I heard Victor's booming voice and expected that the hands would disappear from my face. It didn't happen though. I opened my good eye and after a few seconds of a blurry image, I saw the rest of Blaze's gang beating Victor into a pulp. He had no chance against the four of them. I tried to move towards them but when I took a few steps my head exploded with pain and I fell onto the floor. Blaze was standing over me with what was left of the chair in his hands. He shook his head like a disappointed parent and put his foot on me, preventing me from trying to get up. He yelled something to his pals and I heard them dragging Victor across the house. I didn't know if he was conscious or not, but wasn't struggling in their hold. That's just you and me now, said Blaze, crouching over me. You are bleeding. 
He reached out to touch my face, looking at me like he wasn't the one who broke the window with my head and smashed a chair on my back. He started calmly telling me something about how lucky I was that he was there to help me, how he wanted to destroy Victor, but I couldn't understand the reason why. Then, his soothing voice turned into one full of mockery, and he started threatening me, saying what he and his pals would do to Victor and that he would let him live if I pleased him sexually. The longer I laid there plying, the more excited he was getting. I kicked him right between the legs. The sound he made could only be described as a howl and he fell to the floor. I managed to get up. I was seeing black dots and I barely registered where the door was. I started walking in that direction, but I fell in the doorway. And when I tried to get up again, Blaze walked over to me, grabbed me by the hair and pulled me back inside. He was fuming with rage. He kicked me in the face, stomach, and didn't forget to repay me with a few strong kicks between my legs. It hurt so badly I almost blacked out. He dragged me across the floor and tied my hands to the table legs with some rags. I'll be back for you. Now don't run away. He kicked me in the genitals again, and this was when I passed out. When I came to, it was probably sunset. My right eye was glued with dried blood, and my hands were still tied to the table legs. The rags were old and worn enough that they ripped after a few tugs. I slowly got up. Walking was so painful that tears were streaming down my face. It was quiet outside. I had no idea where those monsters could hide, but more importantly, I had no idea what they'd done to Victor. I was limping around for some time, feeling scared, alone, and sure that Blaze was about to jump out at the nearest bushes. Suddenly, I saw a face among the trees. At first, I thought it was one of Blaze's guys, but quickly realized it was Victor. I started limping faster toward him, but stopped dead in my tracks when I saw what position he was in. They made him into a fucking scarecrow. They put two solid branches so that they were crossed, the, the vertical ones stuck in the ground with Victor's neck rather loosely tied to it. His hands were tied with a thick rope to the second branch. He wasn't conscious, and he was hanging by his tied hands and neck. His face was full of scratch marks, as if a wild animal got into a fight with him. His right eye was swollen, lips were split, and one of his legs was surely broken. The rest of the damage done to him was hidden under his jacket. I tried to untie him. My hands were shaking, but I removed the rope from his neck first and then untied his hands. He fell on me like a lifeless doll. I don't know how I did it, but I basically carried him to the car. In a normal situation, I wouldn't be able to lift him up, but back then, my survival instincts kicked in. Victor still had the car keys in his pocket, but just like me, he was without his phone. I pushed him into the passenger seat and slowly sat behind the wheel myself. The pain was back, and at that moment I was sure my testicles' place was officially in the trash. I don't remember how I drove us to the hospital. I know we both collapsed after getting out of the car and someone alarmed the hospital staff. I woke up a day and a half later. Victor took a little longer. The physical damage they caused was worse than I expected. I had a whole constellation of bruises on my body, a broken rib, and experienced some internal bleeding. Later on, the doctor told me that I wouldn't be able to have kids after what Blaze put me through. Victor lost his eye that day. Both his legs were broken, and he suffered from pneumonia before he left the hospital bed. After some time, he admitted he had no chances of becoming a father either. 
and I think that was the part that hurt both of us the most. Blaze didn't plan on coming back for us. When he attacked us, he was high as a kite, and when the police came to his parents' flat, he was confused and didn't remember what he had done. He remembered that he hated Victor for some reason, a reason he seemed not to know himself, and he confirmed that he overheard my conversation with the salesman in the coffee shop. He also admitted to threatening us, but he didn't remember hiding in the wardrobe and waiting for us or anything else. And his pals, they were too dumb to even answer questions such as, why did you beat up that man? They acted like they didn't understand that there had to be a reason for their violence. Blaze wanted someone hurt, so they hurt him. Simple. To sum it all up, if I was tied to something else than a rotten table with old rags, Victor would have died in that forest. The day I got out of the hospital, I created a folder on my computer and wrote down everything that happened. Victor blamed himself for it all. He says that if he'd listened to me, it wouldn't have happened. He found the file with my description of the events, and after reading that, he became even more depressed. I have my own emotional scar because of what happened, but he was just in despair. He hated himself. He stopped doing anything else than going to work, getting back from work, and eating if I pushed the food under his nose. His parents asked me to take him to my therapist, but after one year of working on his depression with the person that helped me, there was no change. Telling him he didn't do anything wrong only irritated him. What saved him was painting. I once watched a true crime documentary where they mentioned it as part of therapy, so I decided to try. I bought canvas, acrylic paints, and brushes. He'd never done that before, but even his first painting was absolutely wonderful. He expressed his feelings that way and became more and more talkative as time went by. Nowadays, we aren't afraid to talk about what happened, and if one of us needs support, the other is there to offer it. What happened to us scarred us for life, but scars heal, and I'm hoping that one day, we will be just fine. Follow our social channels on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod. If you'd like to get your story on the show, you can find all submission options at disturbedpodcast.com. Let us know your thoughts on the podcast or share your own experience on our hotline at disturbedpodcast.com slash hotline. Disturbed is an independent production funded through advertising and your support. And if you'd like to support the show, you can get early access to our premium feed featuring ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast to learn more. Music by Carl Casey at whitebataudio and co.ag. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all. Disturbed.